Please remain standing for the reading of our sermon text and Old Testament reading today. It comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, the first 11 verses of the first chapter. Ecclesiastes 1, 1 to 11. This being the word of God, let us give it our reverent attention. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, and the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would now equip us to understand this difficult passage Help us to rest in Jesus Christ, who takes that which is old and worn out and makes it new. We thank you and ask these things in his precious name. Amen. Please be seated. In the first book of the Kings, Chapter 4, the Holy Spirit writes of King Solomon. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite. Hemon, Kalkal, and Darda, the sons of Machol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. And he spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and 
birds and creeping things and fish and men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. All of which is to say that long before there was a renaissance, King Solomon was very truly a renaissance man. In addition to all his prodigious accomplishments as a poet and songwriter, Solomon was also a bona fide scientist, a natural scientist. All of his life, King Solomon was making empirical observations of the world around him. He'd make observations on everything from life to love to laughter. He analyzed what he saw. He constructed hypotheses to explain it. He put those hypotheses to the test and he came to some very candid conclusions about the nature of things. And best for all, uh, best of all for those of us who live these 3,000 years later after Solomon, he reduced these conclusions to writing, some of which survive in the scriptures for us today. The Song of Songs, for instance. The book of Proverbs and the book before us today. This morning we sample the wisdom of the Holy Spirit through Solomon, wisdom captured for all time in this Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. King Solomon, who by the time he wrote this book was already King Solomon the Old, King Solomon the experienced veteran of life, he records in this book some of his observations and the various tests he ran on them and the conclusions to which he came. And the results are really remarkable. They're remarkable. For his relentless, no-holds-barred pursuit of the unvarnished truth, this book resonates with people who are fed up with the shallow, superficial answers of this present age in which we live. It resonates with people who are fed up with following all these lockstep lemmings of our culture, following them over the moral and intellectual cliff of unbelief. This book, written by the Holy Spirit, teaches us to distinguish the cheap paper money of human opinion from the much rarer, much more precious, solid gold rewards of careful analysis and truth, bedrock truth. Ecclesiastes is a challenging book because it's a book for people who think. It's an Old Testament book and yet it never seems to grow old. Not as long as there are still people who think deeply about life's persistent questions. People who really believe that above all else, not human opinion, but the truth about things matters. The objective truth. It's largely a forgotten book that our present generation really needs to read. We really need to read this and take it to heart because it shows us the world not as we want it to be, not as we imagine it to be, 
It shows us the world as it is. It's a challenging book intellectually. People reading it for the first time have to figure out how they're actually going to interpret it as they read, how they ought to understand this, because it's not like many other books of the Bible. Ecclesiastes says some pretty unexpected things. We come to Ecclesiastes for the first time with certain presuppositions about what it's going to tell us. Expectations, presuppositions. After all, here it is in the very heart of the Bible. So we figure this is guaranteed to couch the moral issues of life in the usual stark black and white moral contrast characteristic of the whole Bible. Right? We pick up this book and we think we're going to come away from it really no wiser than we were when we opened it. We come, we're going to come away from it saying, I knew that that's what it was going to say. This is just more to the garden variety counsel of God. Do this, don't do that. Which, of course, is a very shallow approach to any piece of literature that you might pick up and start to read. But we come to Ecclesiastes with these presuppositions about what it's going to tell us and its view of the world. And then we begin reading this first chapter and we think, whoa, wait a minute. This is like dust in the wind. This is bleak. This is way more complicated as a view of the world than I'm used to reading in the Bible. And Ecclesiastes is complex complicated, it is complex, because it is reality. And as you know by now, most of you, reality doesn't come to us in these stark, black and white, easily understood cartoons. Reality comes to us in all of its true colors and shades and textures. I want you to remember that Solomon, the natural scientist, isn't artificially superimposing his own theological presuppositions on what he observes. He's not trying to make reality fit his construct. He's just calling it as he sees it. And now looking back over his life as an old man, as actually an old king, therefore a man of considerable resources to fund his research, the conclusion he reaches is this. Vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now before we get to this surprising upfront conclusion, we ought to consider that expression, the preacher. He calls himself the preacher, and people often wonder why it is that he doesn't simply refer to himself as Solomon, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. He refers to himself as the preacher. In Hebrew, the title used is Koheleth. 
koheleth, which, for which preacher is sort of a derivative meaning. Its more basic meaning is the one who calls others together. The koheleth is the one who calls people together, assembles them. The one who summons the congregation together to hear the word of God, for instance. Which, if you know the story about Solomon, you know that that's exactly what Solomon did on that singularly memorable occasion of his dedication of the temple in Jerusalem, the first temple, the Solomonic temple. You'll find it in 2 Chronicles 5. Then Solomon assembled in Jerusalem the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' households of the sons of Israel, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled themselves to the king at the feast, that is, in the seventh month. So Solomon, the Koheleth, called them all together, and all the men of Israel came and assembled together. In fact, throughout all the annals of Israel's history, there had never been an assembly on the scale of this one, either before or since. This was the day that the glory of God filled the temple. The day that Solomon spoke, Solomon prayed, Solomon blessed the people on that occasion. According to the seventh chapter of Second Chronicles, King Solomon offered a sacrifice of, hold on to your seats, 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. Thus the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. So Solomon observed the feast at that time for seven days, and all Israel with him, a very great assembly, who came from the entrance of Hamath, that is a way up north, to the brook of Egypt, a way down south. And on the eighth day they held a solemn assembly for the dedication of the altar, they observed seven days, and the feast seven days. Then on the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people to their tents, rejoicing and happy of heart, because of the goodness that the Lord had shown to David and to Solomon and to his people Israel. There had never been an assembly like that assembly. And so its convener, its chief speaker came to be called not only King Solomon, but the great Koheleth, the great convener and even the great preacher. So with all that background in mind, what does this accomplished Renaissance man, Solomon, the poet, songwriter, royal son of David, natural scientist, and even preacher, What he sees, what does he see sizing up the world around him? He sees emptiness, futility. Everything he considers, everything he puts to the test amounts in his eyes to nothing more than a mere breath, a vapor. There is nothing here, as he looks around, there is nothing here of lasting value. 
his palace, his ivory throne, his wealth, his gardens, his projects, his politics, his 700 wives and 300 concubines, life itself. They're all vanity because they're here for a moment and then they're gone. And this is something many people don't expect the Bible to say. And they certainly don't want the Bible to say. So the Holy Spirit, through Solomon here, invites us to take a closer look. He shows us the evidence of a life that is lived under the sun. A life lived with both feet firmly planted in this desperately fallen world. First of all, in verses 3 and 4, he directs our attention to the circularity of our life's work. The circularity of our life's work. It follows a certain predictable pattern, doesn't it? A pattern that we're told to expect on the day that Adam first dropped his guard and fell into sin. The Lord God on that day said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Here's the futility, the vanity of it. For all you put into your work every day, year after year, for all your financial planning, for all your daily commutes to and from work, for all the time you spent away from your family just to put food on your table, you are able to discern no lasting, permanent progress, no significant movement forward. Why is this? Well, you can think of taxation, inflation, all the unexpected losses and expenses that make your work seem more like life lived on a hamster wheel. You're not getting anywhere. You haven't advanced the human condition. You start out life enthusiastic. You start your work out of school, fresh out of school, enthusiastic. You're going to find the cure for cancer. You're going to uh, write the great American novel. And you find sooner or later that while you wanted to advance the human condition, you've hardly advanced your own. You spend your efforts in vain. Let's say you're a farmer or even a gardener. If you're a farmer or a gardener, then you know a thing or two about weeds, about pests, about drought, about shortages, and a thousand other things outside your control. A good year as a gardener or a farmer, a good year is one in which your harvest 
somehow exceeds all the expenditures over the past six months on seeds and tools and time and labor of putting it all into the ground. Your work becomes the meaningless circle described in the old coal miner's song, 16 tons. You move 16 tons, and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. And then you die. And you pass along that debt to your heirs, the next generation. What advantage is there in that? That is the circularity he is describing here, the circularity of our work. Then secondly, in verse 5, he looks at the very literal circularity of the passage of time. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. That never changes, does it? It's always the weary, dreary sameness. It's up in the east, across the sky, down in the west. Up in the east, across the sky, down in the west. Up in the east, across the sky, down in the west. And the older you get, the faster that wheel seems to spin. You're another day older and deeper in debt. The circularity of the passage of time. It's a weary thing to consider under the sun. And thirdly, in verses 6 and 7, he considers the circularity of all the natural processes that go on around us every day. For instance, the wind blows. You rake the grass clippings into a nice pile over here, and then before you're able to turn and get the wheelbarrow and the rake and, and gather them up together, you find them spread all over the yard in another place. The wind blows. The water flows. Always downhill. That would be something to note. That would be something a natural scientist is interested in if he finds the water is flowing some other direction than downhill. But it always flows downhill. In fact, every life cycle that you can imagine, from the human to the planetary, everyone marches onward in its steady, predictable course. A child is conceived and born and grows and marries and declines and dies. Generation after generation, it's this way. And meanwhile, every springtime blossoms into full summer, declining into fall and dying in the winter, year after endless year, thoughtful minds have to ask, what's the point of all this? Because fourthly, in verses 8 to 11, he notes that the insatiable need of the human soul for answers that satisfy, as well as our total inability to find them. The insatiable need of the human soul for answers that satisfy. 
and our total inability to find them. What does this all signify? What's life all about? Our fathers never figured it out, or they'd have been able to tell us. We're not able to figure it out, and so we have nothing solid to pass along to our children when they go looking for answers. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it, says Solomon. And so, in this way, the Holy Spirit, by the pen of Solomon, forcibly opens our eyes to the plain, unvarnished truth about human life that is lived strictly under the sun and under the curse. It's just one big, unending, wearisome circle of getting nowhere. All these 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 years amount to is one insignificant little life that came out of darkness, sputters briefly across the firmament of history, and then disappears again into darkness. That's not what we expect the Bible to tell us, is it? But in Ecclesiastes, it does. Why? Why does it tell us these things? Why is this singular book of Ecclesiastes so important, not only to the church, but to all of humanity? Why is it important? Friends, it's important because the proud human heart has to have the props knocked out from under it. The longer I live, the more convinced I am that the vast majority of people living today live their lives in this shallow, imaginary world of their own making. A totally imaginary world in which everything's going to work out just fine for them. A world in which they'll always be young, strong, good-looking as they are today. A world in which they'll always have their faithful life partner at their side. And as for future uncertainties, well, here's how we handle future uncertainties. We just work a little harder, pray a little harder, put a little more aside, vote the right way, and maybe luck will smile on you. Maybe you can make your own luck. Dear friends, to the human soul, this shallowness is the deadly Iocane powder that you may have heard of in the 1987 movie, The Princess Bride. You won't detect it. It's tasteless and odorless, but it's deadly poison. This is a fantasy world from which the book of Ecclesiastes suddenly and rudely weans us and wakens us to by showing us what life is under the curse. Life as it really is under sin and the curse. It's a life that is desperate and hard and short. So why do we need to be so rudely awakened? 
to the clear and present danger of a life lived under the sun, a life lived absolutely without reference to the saving work of God in Christ Jesus. Listen, the book of Ecclesiastes is 100% dead on target about this life men live under the sun. This is the way it is. This doctrine is the one solid foundation on which the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and his love for sinners can be built. It's the only worldview of the lost world in which the gospel can gain any traction. The one background against which the bright hope of the gospel can be fully appreciated. If sinners are going to reckon the gospel of Jesus Christ as the one and only antidote it is, the one and only bright hope for dying sinners who are very short on time, then we have to be awakened soon to our true natural condition. This book of Ecclesiastes doesn't tell the whole story, of course, But it tells us a very important part of the story, that the ship humanity is on is going down fast. It's hit an iceberg called God's curse, and it's going down fast. We're in very deep trouble, the very little time we have to do anything about it. That's what Ecclesiastes shows us. Well, let me make just a couple quick applications as we conclude. The first of them has to do with the exercise of knowledge. Our exercise of knowledge. This relentless pursuit of the truth, wherever it might lead us, was never intended simply to provide the grist for theological thought and debate. Solomon here, in his studies, he's not after knowledge for knowledge's sake. Knowledge is important to him, wisdom is important to him, but not in itself. Because the Christian life isn't a life lived exclusively within that seven or eight inch space between your ears. The Christian life is a life lived out there, out there. Out there in the real world, this fallen, sin-cursed world, this relentless pursuit of the truth, whether Solomon's pursuit or your own pursuit of the truth, it exists so that we might behave and act wisely, prudently, not stupidly in this world, even as we await the new and better one promised soon to replace it as we wait for that coming world wherein righteousness dwells. Before we reach that one, we have to face life in this one, and we have to face it wisely and for the glory of God. So that's the application on the exercise of knowledge, what we know. My second application I've already alluded to. It's about the exercise of faith. 
that we can't fully appreciate the glorious free offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ until we have faced and come to terms with the sober realities of life in this fallen world in which and from which Christ saves us. We can't appreciate that without the book of Ecclesiastes and the view of this world that it gives us. Solomon the wise lived at a discreet point in human history, didn't he? Nearly a thousand years before Christ, Solomon worked with the data that he had available to him. Under those historical constraints, although Solomon spoke truly, absolutely truly, he only knew what was given him to know at that time of history. But that fragrant rose of redemption history has opened more fully, considerably more fully than Solomon ever lived to see, didn't it? It's opened. In his quest for answers 3,000 years ago, Solomon saw not the world to come. What he saw was the world before him, day to day, the world he had available to him. You and I, in Jesus Christ, enjoy the high privilege of having a foot planted in each of two worlds. Two worlds. This one that we know so well and so aptly described for us here by the wisest of men and the one promised us wherein there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The world where death does not exist, circularity and vanity does not exist, the coming world, where all these former things about which we've been reading today, these former things have passed away. Because he who sits on the throne says, behold, look, I am making all things new. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, our Father, we thank you for the work that you have done for us in history, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In the going forth of the gospel, you have truly turned the world upside down. And you are building on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, according to the cornerstone, our Lord Jesus Christ, you are building an edifice of a new humanity with a new hope and a bright future. We praise you and how we thank you that you've enabled us to be a part of this, that you've included us in Jesus Christ by faith And that all that he has merited by his perfect obedience in life has become ours. And all of our sin heaped upon him at the cross became his. 
Lord, these things are precious to us. We pray that you would make them often pass through our minds and abide there. Help us to think through them so that we may talk through them and we may tell our children and their children about the glorious things you have done in Christ Jesus and the glorious hope that you've set before us in the gospel of a new and better world wherein righteousness dwells. We humbly ask these things and express to you our praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.